it's interesting, you know, just every trend is in Texas's favor. So I'm not surprised to hear what you're what you're saying. Uh, you know, a lot of these relocations, you know, they announce them like a business relocation, but they don't just move immediately. It's like they announced yeah. it in 2020, but they actually are going to move in 2023. So then they're still ringing Levi's phone um, or your brokers, I guess, probably, but about moving. Yeah, um, certainly. So, yeah, that. That all makes sense. And so I got the reasons yeah. why, you, why you invest in it. What would we have a lot of passive investors that uh, listen and watch? So what what would you say like your investors are um, looking for? Because I think they're probably not saying I like how high the untrended yield on cost is or what we were talking about before. This is like yeah. they, they're looking at this from a different angle. So what have you heard? What do they like about investing in industrial? I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Rise and Invest podcast. I bought my first two properties as a 19-year-old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real-life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. All right, welcome everybody. With me today is Levi Benkert. Levi is the founder of Harbor Capital, a real estate private equity shop that specializes in industrial properties in Texas. Levi and I, we met over Twitter, so excited to have him on the podcast. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. It's fun to be here. I'm excited to get a chance to do this. Yeah. I feel like I know you because we've connected on Twitter so much, but I yeah, actually seen no, I, you. So, yeah. I know. This is definitely feel like I know you well, too. And yeah, the first person that I ran across that we both bought... Uh, properties when we were teenagers so i remember That's right. seeing you tweeted <laughs> that you bought something when you're uh 18 19 or something and i was like wow someone yep. else did that yep. so yeah very awesome. brave brave real estate agent um my wife and i got married real young too and then within i think we'd been married like a month or two we just walked into a real estate office and we're like we want to buy a house and this yeah. guy, I, I still remember and brian mcmartin i ended up buying a bunch of houses with him he was like I mean, sit down, we'll try to figure this out. I don't know if it's possible, but we'll certainly try. <laughs> yeah, and like what year about was that? It was, uh, so we got married in December of 99. And so it was 2000, like February, March of 2000, where we, we walked into his office. I mean, we had, he was like, how much money do you have saved up? We were like, $2,000 maybe. We could probably okay, get wow. a little bit more. You know, we'll save between now and when it closes. And he's like, okay, well. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> We'll see if we can make yeah, this work. Yeah, that's see, I got started in 2004. So then, you know, it was a perfect time where um, I actually had uh, income you could document and like a uh, like a plan. So I was already, you know, I don't yeah. know, like uh, a step ahead of half the borrowers at that point with their uh, no doc loans and um, oh right, you know, right, whatever else right. they were they were doing back then. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, we we used a couple of we used a couple of like down payment assistance programs that basically would burn off. So they gave you like 3% of your down payment or something and it would burn off oh, if nice. you kept the house for more, for more than five years. Well, we only kept it for years. So we ended up having to pay that back, but um, yeah, incredible like programs. I remember it was an 8% interest loan. So I, you know, even though it was like, a, I think we paid 92,000 or something for the house, we still had a fairly expensive mortgage, you know, yeah. <laughs> like $1,200 yeah. a month or something, but <laughs> Nice. Well, great. Well, yeah. Well, so actually, the the topic of today's episode is not going to be how to do your first deal, but maybe we uh, no. <laughs> we should do we should do that one later. But uh, so right. far, really, every pod yeah podcast we've done has been more or less about multifamily real estate, or just maybe more just real estate in general. And Levi, he does industrial, like I mentioned in the intro, and really haven't talked about industrial so far. Um, I know the the asset type well. I, I bought one deal in 2010, an industrial deal. It's been it's been great. We still have the same original two tenants in it. Uh, one of the tenants was a post office uh, uh, sorting facility, or still is one of the tenants on a 15 year lease. So we really haven't had to do anything since we bought it. Almost, um, it's been a great great deal. So I I know the product types, but I want we should just I want to start with like more of a basic uh, kind of what is industrial, and then get into how what Levi focuses on and, and how things are, are looking today. So I'm going to ask some questions that might seem basic, but we want to, um, you know, just if you're not familiar with it. So. No, that's great. It's funny. What my, my 
joke, but it's not even really a joke. Every party I'm at, people ask what I'm, what I do. And I say industrial real estate and they kind of gloss over like, wait, what, what is that? What does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let me dive yeah, in. Yeah. And there's yeah. a bunch of different so, types. Yeah. Absolutely. So even if they think one thing like, oh, it might just be this like a uh, bunch of little garages, like, okay, maybe that is one part, but also there's, you know, uh, these gigantic sorting facilities that, you know, FedEx and Amazon take down too. So there's like a wide range of what does that even mean? But Cool. Well, yeah, maybe why don't, if you want, let's just give a, maybe a quick intro on yourself and then let's get going on industrial. Yeah. So I, I've been a real estate GP of, of one sort or another for the past 21 years. Uh, did my first deal that I raised capital on back in, I think it was 2002, raised money. I was real young, raised some friends and family capital and uh, turned a profit and paid everybody back and thought, thought I was Superman and I could do, keep doing this. Um, kind of throughout the years did that had a rough uh 2008 was rough because i owned a bunch of uh multifamily lots that were ready to be built I meaning i'd already put curb gutter sidewalks storm drains in the ground and paid the the fees to build but then wasn't able to build because the banks came and said hey we're pulling all your construction loans you know that we, we like you but we don't like the market and so we're not going to do this and so uh figured out the you know the, the hard way, kind of how bad the market can get, but learn so much. I mean, if I had, you know, to do it again, I, I certainly uh, would would do it differently, but also I'm very thankful for the, the lessons learned through that period of life. Um, started a multifamily development company a couple of years later, sold that in 2019, um, developed, sold it, had a $1.1 billion pipeline of projects that were either under, under development or already, you know, land secured and ready to get started on. Um, and then started Harbor Capital. So Harbor Capital's uh, not even two years old yet. We own $120 million worth of industrial real estate in Texas. So only Houston, Austin, Dallas, San Antonio markets. We are obsessed with uh, these cities and the the synergy between those cities that uh, creates this, you know, uh, of course, a, a, a recession is a recession, but um, it's, it's by no means evenly distributed. And we're finding... Uh, Texas to be incredibly resilient and still seeing a lot of growth. And we like that and are thankful for that. Um, but we buy, you know, and when I say industrial, what I mean is typically class B, meaning it's not not brand new, not super nice, but still serves the same function of, uh, you know, what a brand new building would serve for a tenant. Our tenants range from, uh, you know, manufacturers who actually do manufacturing out of our buildings to, you uh, warehousing and they store, you know, on pallets or racks, you know, lots of equipment and or supplies that they ship out. Um, and we even have, yeah, I think we sold one recently that was a gymnastics facility. And so kind of whatever, whatever needs tall ceilings and wide open spaces, we will lease to them. Um, yeah, our, so then, our, I'll keep go going. Ahead. <laughs> our typical, <laughs> uh, play or playbook, I guess, that we'd like to run that we've made really the most money on is buying a vacant building um, or something that's severely under leased and figuring out how to reposition it, doing some tenant improvement work or, you know, work before we have a tenant to get it ready and then leasing it. Um, it's, an, it's an incredibly inefficient market, which I really like. That's one of the things that pushed me away from multifamily is there's a lot of players in that market. And so therefore, a lot of people who kind of know the value of a building, we, we often acquire buildings where the seller just didn't know what it was worth or didn't know it was p potential. And we're able to come in and add that value. And, you know, sometimes it's 40 or 50% higher than we paid for it. We like that. Yeah, a lot of, I mean, it's an owner user. I mean, maybe they bought the building for their business and then you contact yeah. them and they could lease it back from you or they're done with it. And they don't, they're not really in, in real estate per se. They just own this one building yeah so that makes a lot of sense yeah i always joke that if it wasn't for baby boomers we wouldn't have sellers because many of them bought buildings and kind of didn't know what they were doing but they were smart investments for a little while and now are just kind of stuck holding the bag and getting ready to retire and excited when somebody comes along and says, it's like I, you know i'm a real buyer we've got real capital here and we're ready to to help you move on to the next phase of life and yeah that works yeah and then so just kind of how would you describe your What's uh, just an industrial building? So I know you're talking about things, tall ceilings, but what else would, would one of these industrial buildings look like? Um, it's kind of two different formats when you break it down. I mean, there's obviously a lot of nuance within them, but it's either dock high doors, meaning a semi truck can back up and, you know, the, 
the ground height is right at the height of the, the truck. And so you can unload and load the semi truck with a forklift without having to have a lift or a lift gate. Um, or there's ground high doors, which are, you know, obviously a different type of use. And so for manufacturing, it's always ground high doors and maybe there'll be one or two dock highs. And for warehousing, you know, sometimes we've got buildings with 25 dock high doors on them. Um, that's kind of the two major distinctions. Height makes a big difference when you're talking about racking. And so it's always, you know, two, three or four piles high of, of you know, racking systems. Uh, the taller you get, the more, you know, obviously it's not just the ceiling height, but also then the um, fire sprinkler system needs to be upgraded pretty significantly to handle just that much more flammability, you know, or flammable product that can be stacked there. Um, it's amazing how much more expensive that fire sprinkler system can get. Yeah. There's just big boxes with tall ceilings and, uh, you know, and, and docks to pull, pull trucks up to. So, yeah. Yeah. And then certainly. once you get going in it, you know, I got a buddy who works, uh, who works for Nuveen and you ask him, what do you want in an industrial building? And he's got, you know, you got to have the dock high loading, cross docking, this and that, you know, like where there's a lot of nuance to it, but to keep it simple, it's like, you know, these are, you know, not your prettiest buildings in town, but that's where like your, your average company is going to, going to be working out of where they need some sort of storage or sorting space, or, um, they have actual product they need to move. Not everybody just works on a computer all day. And then this right. is where they, they would, they, they go. So then what yeah. are your, what are your tenants like in these kind of buildings? Um, you know, that's one of the, the advantages that we've figured out how to position ourselves into is basically setting up really conservative financing structures, which basically just means we have very large reserve funds and low debt on our deals so that we can wait for the right tenant. And so we recently bought a big 135,000 square foot building uh, vacant and put a structure together where we've got you know, multiple years worth of reserve funds set aside so that we don't have to rent to the first tenant that comes along because the difference between a you know a local kind of brand new startup that that has weak financials and maybe six months or three months worth of you know uh, debt service cover you know lease coverage in the bank compared to leasing to you know publicly traded company that's not going to default on the loan the difference in value in a building depending on the tenant can be 30 or 40 percent I mean, we buy buildings and then we sell leases. Basically, when we turn around and flip, if we sell something that we own, but, you know, we're basically selling the quality of the lease. And that quality of the lease is largely dependent on our ability to sit and wait and negotiate. You know, if we're desperate and we're, you know, looking at those mortgage payments every month, like, oh, you know, crap, this thing could go sideways real quick. We need to get out of it. Then we're, we're much more, uh, you know, negotiable and we don't want to be that. So... Yeah, I mean Steve. that's good advice, really, for anybody in any commercial property. Because what's what's interesting, maybe if you're watching or listening and you've invested in, let's say, uh, any sort of just residential property, where yeah, like you're not a lot of times in these commercial deals, you know, you're not really picking your tenant. You you know, in a way, you have it's for for lease, and then a lot of owners they just will take the first. Uh, respectable company that comes in through the door and it's like, Oh, I have this right. shopping center and I used to have a bank there, but now, um, this, uh, you know, uh, this restaurant wants to come through and they'll do it like, okay. Like that's your only right. sort of application, if you will, like at that point. Um, so then that's, that's a really good point with commercial where if you want to be able to pass on, uh, uncertain tenants and wait for the right one, yeah, you got to have a lot of reserves because obviously an empty building or half empty or whatever it would be while you're waiting. It's not making yeah. any, any money at that point. Which which then you kind of take a step back and look at what does it take in order to put those reserve funds together? You know, for us, we use some of our own capital, but also raise money from investors. And we basically need investors to agree that they're going to kind of overfund this deal, which means it's going to have lower potential returns for them. And and that yeah. then comes back to reputation. You know, how, how trusted are you? How, you know, much of a... a good operator and what's your reputation how much do people see you as somebody who knows what they're doing to be able to be willing to accept you know this might be a three or four points lower irr projection because we're going to have a two million dollar reserve fund that sits there largely unproductive you know we'll, we'll right. often sit, stick those into a cd or something just so that they're earning a little bit of interest but they're really not 
productive. Yeah. Or if you, you know? don't, yeah, if you don't need it, then it's like, it's 2 million bucks you invested and there's no, like the, the multiple on that is just, it's one, you just get it back. Like it doesn't help your deal any, um, right. if you end up not needing it, what are you, right. and then that's a good strategy though. Cause one thing with these commercial deals, and I've kind of wondered how people act, set them up. Um, so you, you raise money mostly from individuals. Is that right? Then yeah. Uh, all of the above high net worth family offices, uh, individual investors and, uh, big institutions kind of every one of our deals has a smattering of every different one in them. So we have yeah, 1100 LPs who are accredited that are on our list that receive our deals. And uh, we typically fill up real quick. It's one of the, yeah, that's, of having, that's having delivered strong returns is people keep coming back and giving us their money. So, yeah. And then how did you build up that, that list, uh, of 1100 then? Over the years, really, I mean, I, you know, like I said, Harbor Capital started recently. We've had an incredible run up of, you know, buying in, uh, quite a bit of real estate in the last year and a half. Um, but it wasn't that we started from zero. There were family offices, of, uh, you know, that had done many deals with me in prior businesses that I had started and had successful exits and kind of knew what we were capable of doing and were willing to take that chance. I mean, that's not to say those first those first deals, it was kind of, they're looking at me sideways, like, wait a minute, industrial? I'm explaining to them. So I've done some industrial deals before. I, I, I do have experience in this. And, you know, from a structure standpoint, it's the same. It's just that the property is a little bit different. But, yeah. 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 That makes, yeah, it makes sense. Because one thing I've always wondered, especially where if, let's say, it seems easier if you have like one or two investors in a commercial deal where they really, maybe they, they, um, you know, I would say it feels like at times like they understand the plan better of what this business plan is going to be. And then like they might know, OK, if we don't land this tenant, we're going to need to add money. And so it seems like yeah. since you've had a you have a, a quite a few investors in any given deal, like your strategy to to avoid having to add money if, if the hold is longer. It's just a plan like what's sort of already the worst case scenario for how long this will sit uh, when we need to find a tenant and then just I'm sure budgeting for you know, max commissions and tenant build outs where then you're not, because the reason you're funding all that up front, you're trying to avoid going back to the investors and say, actually, we need another year of carrying the building and we need more right. money or what's the. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you kind of can't predict what the future is going to bring and we want to be ready for anything. And I hate capital calls. I've had to do it before yeah. on, on deals when the market turned and, you know, I, I think, I put a very high value at sleeping at night on sleeping at night. And I, I think our investors do too. And so we basically just go to them and say, Hey, you know, we want to ask you to, to take this deal. That's potentially going to have a lower IRR than it would if we'd levered up and, and raised less equity, you know, how do you feel about it? I mean, it's funny. We always kind of uh, say that, but then we've sold four deals. Well, two of them sold already. Two of them are in, in contract to sell soon. And our, our IRRs are 112, 63, and then the two that we're selling are one's a 60 and one's a are better than 60 and better than 50% IRR for investors. So certainly wow. um, delivering good returns. Even And even all yeah. of those had big reserve funds. So. And on those deals, because and, and those were, those are all, I guess, if they're Harbor Capital deals, those are, you know, one or so year holds then, just how it worked out. Yeah. I mean, those ended up all being, those all being one year holds and, that's not necessarily our primary strategy, but there's a certain type of building that you've kind of extracted all the value out of it that we want to, and we'd rather 1031 that investor money back into something else that we can add value again. You know, if you kind of draw that out yeah. over a five-year period and, and you know, basically we just give our investors the option. We have some, some deals that we're just not selling. We're going to hang onto this thing, you know, for the proverbial forever. And we have another set of deals that we're kind of spinning you know, we're going in, add value, and then sell. Uh, you can compound your earnings pretty substantially over a five-year period if you've had three or four sales compared to just holding. And so, we want to kind of offer both options. That you know, some of your some of your capital that might be a little bit more risky or want you know a little bit more of a high growth, we've got options there as well. Yeah, no, I I believe it because especially in one thing, or I try to always even just for myself or anyone asks, what should we be doing? Like try to not take your chips off the table, so to speak. And we have a, uh, one deal I think of in particular, it's probably the worst deal we, we bought. Uh, 
but we it was an office building we did find the returns it was like a 20 irr but it was it was just it, like for the time we bought it like that actually believe it or not was like not a great return i feel like if you bought something mm-hmm. in 2009 and then sold it in uh 2014 but we no, right. think on that deal we put we put 930,000 down on it. So we sold the office building. Then we bought a shopping center. We did a 1031. So you don't pay your tax yet. You defer it. That's what this 10, that's what a 1031 is. Then right. we sold the shopping center and we used the money from that to buy two shopping centers. And every year on that 900,000 now, just cash flow and paying the loan down, it's like seven or 800,000 a year. So it's almost like a, you know, if you look at it that way, this isn't the IRR, but it's like, what's your annual return? It's almost a hundred and they're right. not even including the building going up. So that's yeah. what Levi's talking about where, right. And, so, and again, like we actually, usually the deals we're selling, they're not our nicest ones. This was something where it was this office building. We finally got it full and we're like, all right, this is like a hot potato. Let's pass it on to the next group and um, move on with our lives. And yeah, we bought a shopping center that was 80% occupied and did the same thing, filled it up, sold it. And then we bought two really nice shopping centers and those are going to be just longer term holds. Um, yeah. So I, I totally get what you're talking about. Cause right. There's some deals where it's like, wow, this is a really good buy and we're going to make a lot of money. But then once you sort of get it worth what it should be, it's not like one that has like a great potential for as much as the others as rent growth or appreciation or it's an older building. So it yeah. makes total sense. Yeah. Certainly. So then going back, just kind of, to the basics on industrial, then how long are the leases then typically? Uh, five to 10 years. We just signed a 10 recently. We like the 10 year leases, you know, 10 years with a 3% or three and a half percent annual escalation is, is fantastic. Um, kind of the bigger and more complicated the building or the use is the longer the leases are. We're negotiating right now on a big building that'll be a 10 year and then they've got two five year options. Uh, with okay, nice. pricing, pricing and escalation set already. And so that's really um, helpful. And that's because that tenant needs to spend about $3 million in tenant improvements in order to make that building, you know, occupiable by them. So well, nice. And roughly how big is that building? Um, you know, I, that one's 130,000 square feet where we're typically own kind of in the, you know, 75 to 250,000 square foot. But then we have some industrial parks that we own as well that are, you know, maybe 100,000 square foot altogether broken into units as small as 1,200 square feet each. Yeah, but 3 million on, uh, on that size. On 100,000 square feet, yes. Yeah, that's a lot. I'm just doing the math. I mean, they're putting in, you know, 20 yeah. some dollars a square foot of their own money. I mean, so that's, a, you yeah. know, that's a big chunk of money on that, especially when you look at it per foot. So yeah. Yeah, it's interesting from a, a market perspective, seeing higher interest rates come in has has increased demand from tenants across the board, because at least in Texas, and I, certainly this is not happening all over the country, but in Texas, is the, the businesses are often still growing or moving here from other states and needing space. And when they go to kind of compare, you know, should we buy or should we rent? Rent is a lot more attractive with the seven or yeah. sometimes 8% mortgage rate. Yeah, so that's interesting. That's, so how yeah. have you, yeah, how are you seeing? Because I mean, before the name of the game, it seemed like in an in, in industrial, let's say, and it might still be, but you you almost don't even want to do a long-term lease or because you want to be able, the rents were growing so fast that, you know, no tenant would agree to. Uh, in some of these markets, rents were going, you know, five, eight, per, you know, percent, but no tenant's yeah. going to agree to that. They, they'll say, we'll do three, for a five, you know, a 10 year lease. And then, um, then when their renewal comes up, if they miss their option to renew, like then, then the strategies, then you go, okay, we need to reset this to market. And it has been growing yeah. at uh, way higher. What are, what are you seeing um, in the market now? What are, uh, what do you think of that? My strategy has always been the, the, I have a very firm belief that the future is unknowable. And so I don't think, you know, yesterday's rent increases necessarily will be what we see tomorrow. And so, we would always prefer to have a tenant at you know today's market rate with a conservative rent escalator in there in and so we, we we've never gone that route where we're looking for shorter leases um in terms yeah. of what we're what we're changing strategy wise or have had to change strategy wise with higher rate debt which you know yesterday it just jumped up another 0.75 percent so we're kind of deepening this 
uh, conviction of that this is the right way to go is is we're moving away from the the stabilized asset purchases that we were making and starting to buy more kind of deeper value add, um, and we're also starting to look at debt from a you know look at when I say look at debt I mean we are looking at loans that are outstanding right now and seeing that if the opportunity exists to maybe buy the loan kind of with a loan to own concept in mind you know we would yeah. buy the loan and then if the tenant or the owner of debt it can't you know kind of cure then we would own the property yeah and i mean a lot of smart people yeah have pivoted the last six months into pref equity so it's basically mm -hmm. you know it's basically like a second mortgage um right. just to keep it super simple and a lot of those uh, they're you know 12 to 14 percent is probably market on that and you know that's not you know you're in a riskier position so it's not as uh secure as just a you know the the scene the, the first mortgage but i think yeah. uh a lot of people look at these deals and go well okay my upside is i make 20 percent. my downside is i make zero so if i more or less can get pretty close to a guaranteed 12 i'll just take that um yeah so yeah i've seen a lot of people do that especially if it's pref because um, then you know you people set those up where they're already right in the entity uh mm -hmm. you know as uh as a different share class and then you don't pay well you get you get kicked out now you're yeah. already now it's your deal so yeah. yeah that um so i've seen a lot of i've seen people move to that you know we obviously like we're not you know we just kind of witnessed that where we we didn't haven't borrowed any pref but um makes yeah. makes sense especially if you're looking at deals where it's like the upside is you know as closer to a 12 and you're like why take the risk so yeah because exactly. deals you're looking at today then what are you what do you guys, what, what would make it like a deal you would do then? You looking at uh, like your stabilized yield on cost? Yeah, I mean, we like them to, to kind of stabilize around a nine or a 10 cap um, after we, you know, kind of go in and add value. And we hope to be able to add that value sooner than later. We just bought, recently bought a building that's a cold storage facility in Houston. It's leased and we have a 8.2% um think I've got that right. Eight, mid 8% going in cap rate and two and a half years remaining on the lease, but the current lease is 35% below market. And so as soon as the the lease expires, you know, either the current tenant stays and we raise rent on them or, you know, we get them out and have call it six months worth of vacancy and then find another tenant in there at market rate, we've added, you know, significant value to the, the asset yeah. and that one will stabilize around an eleven percent. So we we started Okay, that. nice. Yeah. Yeah. So then for you, you're looking more just kind of where can I get this to when I'm able to reset the building to market rents, not so much like a IRR or some other metric. Yeah. I mean, we obviously have kind of IRR parameters that we feel we need to offer our investors. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big believer in under promising and over delivering. And so we really want to make sure that we're able to, to deliver, you know, that to investors. And, and we very much look at what's the downside. What is the kind of what, what scenario would exist that would bring this investment to zero and make it a total loss? Kind of what, what's the path to that? We really want to understand kind of how bad these things could get. So we do, we call it a, a pre-mortem, you know, while we're in contract to buy a deal, we sit down as a team and throw out on the whiteboard all of the ways that things could go wrong and what are the mitigating factors and, and honestly identify, you know, we try to do this, we try to honestly identify the things that, that we just can't control that are just completely outside of our control. And, and then we just disclose those to investors and say, I mean, here, here's the way this thing could go to zero. And here's, you know, kind of what we can do about it, but here are things that we just can do nothing about. Yeah. And what sort of things come up when you do that for these type of deals? Um, I, it kind of depends, you know, on a, on a multi-tenant deal, there's a lot less risk that that could happen on a big single tenant deal. There's certainly a lot more of that that we look at. You know, uh, um, I, certainly in our Houston properties, a thing that often ends up pretty high on the list is what if oil prices were to crash and a bunch of the oil companies who, who currently occupy buildings all around the Houston market start to panic and need to rent space and they, you know, kind of shut down a bunch of facilities that they're in this terrible position and have to, dump it on the market. They don't care if, you know, you're renting your, you know, if they're going to turn around and sublease into a market that's typically charging a dollar per square foot per month, they're going to put it for 60 cents a month because they don't care. Yeah, they I just, just dump it to get it out there. 
kind of similar to the situation that's going to start happening here in Austin with the um, a big, yeah big tower yeah. that face, Facebook at least that just yesterday it was official that they're going to sublease it. Um, it's an enormous, an enormous amount of space. Yeah, I just I saw that this this morning with the square footage. So I wouldn't normally know this, yeah. but I think I said five hundred and ninety thousand square feet is what they are going to take in a in a single yeah. building. They are going to take like an entire tower, basically, that's being built, yeah. and now they're. Um, and I'm, they took like a three billion dollar like uh, they just charge how, however yeah. that works with public companies where they yeah. so like a lot of these leases they I can't just like get out of them so they're just now going to try to sublease so yeah to your point if they were going to pay. 25 bucks a foot in rent. Now they're, you know, let's just dump this thing at 18 and move on with our lives. Um, yep. So yeah, now the whole Austin uh, office market has to deal with that. So yeah, especially a public company. I mean, they, they like to have, you know, a bunch of profitable quarters and then just get all the pain over with in one really crappy quarter. And, yeah. and so they try to throw in as much as they can in that quarter. If they're, to, if they, you know, which it might be the smarter thing from a financial perspective for them to draw it out and just slowly lease this thing up at market rate and, and kind of maintain that, you know, high lease rate so that there's, they minimize their loss. It's actually not in their best interest. So they would rather just, you know, take a beating on their stock and say, Hey, we're writing this thing down completely right now. We're setting aside these funds. Here's how it's going to go. And we're just going to get tenants in here. We don't care if it's a total loss or not a total. We don't care if it's a significant loss. Um, which is not helpful yeah, to odd. the market as a whole. Yeah, yeah right. So, where if they just treated it more like an, the owner would have, where, all right, well, let's just rent this thing up over the next two, three years, and then we'll get like respectable rents here. Um, that would, yeah. yeah. They yeah. would come out with more money, but it's like, no, let's just try to get this all in this quarter. We're already struggling enough with the metaverse and everything else. So let's just right. be done with it. Yeah, I mean, all that to say that that's that's one of our biggest risks is that oil. I, although, from a macro perspective, I don't think that's likely because you know there's a lot of, kind of geopolitical, international geopolitical reasons why U.S. energy independence is increasingly important, and we're probably going to keep producing here locally for a long time. And so, I don't think that that market's going to crash, but it certainly could. It has many times in the past. You know, oil never, very rarely makes sense the directions that it heads. Yeah, so, it's going to yeah. do something you think it's not. That's how that's how oil works. So yeah, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, it makes yeah that no that's that would be uh, definitely a, a risk. But yeah, I like your the way you're going about it. Where these are so um, the cable the cap rates are able to stabilize to are so much higher than where the market is. You've got a lot of uh, sort of margin of safety built in there. Just some, yeah. or, you know whatever you want to call it, margin of error. Where okay, rents drop. 30%. Well, then you're actually just going to re-rent it for the rent you're already getting on that deal. And uh, it was yeah. already an eight cap. Interest rates yeah. are, you know, right. at least they're not, they're not eight yet, you know? Um, right. So right. We're, um, <laughs> yeah. The other, the other big thing that we look at and they all kind of interplay together, but just is the replacement cost. And so for instance, that is a almost a hundred thousand square foot building, the cold storage one that I mentioned earlier, you know, we bought it at $91 a square foot and, cold storage of that quality in that location costs about $250 a square foot to build today. And so we've got a major yeah. buffer there, you know, and right yeah, now, no cold storage is, coming then. yeah, and cold storage. I mean, there's like a single, you know, very low single digit, like 2% or something vacancy rate. It's not going to all of a sudden be a bunch of new cold storage on the market. So we feel pretty yeah. well. Yeah. Secure yeah or at least whatever new supply is going to come. I mean, they have to charge like uh, almost, you know, at least double what you're, yeah. what you need. Cause if you're in that 90 a foot and they got to be 200 plus, I mean, so they, they yeah. need to be getting double the rent. So there's a lot of room where you're not going to have competition at the, the rents you're, you're talking about in terms of new, new properties coming online. Yeah. So certainly one thing that's definitely different with a industrial and the most, all the commercial property types is triple net leases. Yeah. So why don't are typically, is that what you guys are, are doing then or, Always. Yeah. We definitely don't, don't like anything other than the triple net leases. So basically yeah. that just means, uh, you know, our rent is secure and then our operating costs pass through to the tenant. And so they have a variable operating call, you know, basically their rent is variable. So they're, they pay for insurance and property taxes on the building and, and any operating costs that we have like landscaping maintenance, things like that. And so we just pass all that through to them. If there's a, 
property tax increase, which we've had quite a few lately. We've had one building that it went up, uh, it literally doubled this year, which is certainly disappointing, but we're able to pass that through to the tenants. Yeah. So contractually, part of their rent. yeah. Contractually in these leases, they pay, you know, all the operating costs back to, back to Levi. Uh, yep. and then, right. So when there's a property tax increase that, um, that's, that's passed on to the tenants. So it doesn't, uh, doesn't impact Levi's uh, net operating income on that deal. Uh, they'll they'll all be complaining a lot when it comes up time to renew their lease, though, because the tenants do look at their their total rent, you know, the gross rent when they're Certainly. figuring out what does this yeah. place cost me. But you know, if you're locked in a ten year lease and your property taxes double in year three, there's not there's really Nothing. not anything they're going to be able to do. Nothing they can so, do. I mean, that said, we always fight quite a bit on property taxes, and we've got to company basically on retainer that goes and fights those for us and we definitely yeah, beat them up me, and try to get those as low as yeah. possible yeah i mean texas and illinois are pretty similar where you just you've got to just basically appeal every year is uh yeah. is the yeah the name no of doubt. the game at least at least they yeah. uh you know it's it's weird in texas the sale prices are undisclosed and in illinois by yeah. law you can't you can't chase the sale so they know the sale but they have to like ignore it it's oh. weird. Yeah. yeah, but then, but, but then, when you appeal, <laughs> yeah, you know, they kind of do. It's like how they use it is like, okay, you bought this building, and then that brings up maybe all the other ones, but they don't just like chase it one to one, like in a lot of states where it's like you paid ten right. million, your assessed value should be ten million now. So right, right, yeah. But yeah, that's great. I mean, because then in terms of you know everyone, it's inflation and interest rates are what's on everybody's mind, and at least within industrial and these commercial property types, you've got um, all the operating costs, property tax changes, increases, those are all passed 100% on to the tenants. Yeah. Um, what about, uh, you know, sometimes CapEx is not, you know, so they'll have like a roof carved out of that or something. So, I mean, when you buy these deals, Levi, what are you normally looking at um, for like big items on the purchase besides the tenant? Like you're, you're checking like what sort of things on this? So the two things that, that we always remain on our, uh, you know, costs uh, on those leases is roof and structure. So if something were to happen to the foundation, then, you know, we need to repair that. We can't pass that through to the tenant. And then we, if the roof starts leaking, we have to come in and, and fix that. So it, it matters to us. I mean, not that it wouldn't matter anyway, even if we were passing that through to the tenant, but it really matters to us uh, how the quality of the roof. So we've got a roofing company that goes out on any asset that we're looking at and they do a very thorough inspection and tell us what, you know, what it's going to take to basically come in and replace that roof. And if it's 15 years old, we figure on a pretty major CapEx budget right up front to, to bring it up. Even it might be a 30 year roof, but you know, about 15 years is when you start to see the leaks and it's kind of nothing worse than the, the stock that gets ruined because of the roof leaked. And so we try yeah. to be really careful on that front. What uh, what roofing types like most common on these buildings? Would you say uh, TPO? You know, it's those white roof that's okay. reflective, and you know, yeah, yeah, that's simple. a newer material in a lot of places. Yeah. So then, even uh, like in in Texas, that was being used 15 years ago, or that's what you're putting on now. If you got that's replace. what we're putting on now. I, you know, a, a lot of them will have a metal roof on there, which you know, some of those metal roofs will last 50 years, and that that is great. But yeah, I mean. We, when we replaced it, almost always the, the best financial move is a TPO. Yeah. Yeah. The last few that we've done, if they're in the, the Midwest, it's all been TPO. Yeah. Arizona's got a, we got some deals there. It's a totally different roof type where it's like a, it's like too hot to use a, a regular roof almost where they have a different setup where they, um, it's, it's not TPO. It's like a buildup of like a, almost like a foam paint. So it's, uh, mm. it's yeah. interesting. So, yeah. Um, but great. Yeah. I think then what, um, what would you say then, um, what do you feel like the next, like, let's say 12 months or so is going to be, be bringing in the industrial market? Cause I'd say like multifamily, we've definitely seen that, um, uh, cool off, like not like obviously rents weren't going to grow for 20% of year. So no one was expecting that, but we've seen things, right. you know, flatten out where your average person, like they're worried about inflation and then now right. they kind of, are feeling things tightening up on them. So they're not, mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, they're not moving as, as much. I feel like, so we're doing, everyone's doing great with renewals, but it's been harder to push rents. 
you're you are locked in on existing leases, um, right, you know, with right. whatever the increases are. But on new ones, I mean, how do you feel like rents have moved? Let's say the last what whatever time frame you think makes sense, six months, and how do you feel like the next year is going to look? Yeah, I mean, we're still seeing rent increases. I think sentiment has shifted to the to the downside. You know, there's certainly a little bit more fear, especially in our smaller businesses. The bigger ones are looking at their their you know orders and saying, "Hey, we we still need more inventory. We need more space in order to deliver the to the, on the orders that we're seeing." Um, I think sentiment shifting means that that you kind of have these odd little pause pauses where it's like, "Oh my gosh, interest rates went up and stock market went down." And it'll quiet out for a little bit. It's funny. It's, it comes in waves and it seems like there's just like three week cycles where we'll, it'll be real quiet. We won't hear from new tenants looking to lease. And then all of a sudden we'll have eight showings in one day and get a couple of leases signed. You know, it's, it's kind of <laughs> odd. But that said, I mean, there, yeah. there, there's, there's not enough space in the market and it costs more by a pretty substantial margin to build compared to the value of everything that we've got in our portfolio. And so I feel real... Uh, safe and secure where we're sitting and we have large reserve funds on all our deals. So certainly feel, feel like we're in a good spot and we're buying, we're absolutely net buyers. We've sold a couple of deals, but I mean, we, we're seeing more and more opportunities come through our pipeline and some are pretty substantial, you know, 30, 40% below market rents and, uh, you know, buying on current, you know, a decent cap rate on current income and we'll, we'll buy that all day long. So. Yeah. And so how have you shifted anything in your strategy then recently, just given how the, uh, the like economy interest rates? Yeah, we're using, we're using less debt and passing through, you know, we, we are increasing our pref rate to investors. And so we're basically just saying, Hey, I'd rather pay you a higher pref rate and raise a little bit more capital on a deal and use less debt so that our debt service coverage ratios are better. You know, we've got a, I think it's like a 1.4 X global debt service coverage ratio across our portfolio, which makes me feel very yeah. comfortable. But yeah, uh, you know, on our new deals, we're even, even being more conservative than that. And so. Nice. Yeah. And this for the folks that don't know 1.4 debt cover, all that would mean is the income from the properties is a, uh, after all the expenses is 140% of what the mortgage payments would be principal yep. and interest. So there's a yeah. 40% extra there for stuff to go wrong or cash flow to pay out. So, yep. Certainly. But nice. Then what, um, so then on your deals, when you said you increased the pref, that's like, uh, the preferred return to the equity or you do a piece that's actually like pref where it's, you know, all they get is that return. No, that's um, the, the, we don't do kind of layered, you know, mes yeah. debt or mes kind of pref equity. Um, but that's just the preferred return. So we have one pool of investors that come in, um, and we pay them either six, seven or 8% preferred return. Uh, annual return on their equity that's in the deal. So if we have, you know, call it $10 million of equity in a deal, then we owe them six, seven or $800,000 a year of kind of the first income that comes out of that deal, distributable cash flow goes to pay that off before we start to participate in the property or in the distribution. So basically it's just yeah. helps, helps investors be comfortable that, you know, as long as this thing performs even somewhat, I've got this kind of base, uh, low watermark that it won't go below. I mean, I guess it certainly can go below yeah. that. As we, as we said, there are risks that we can't control, but, um, you know, assuming things aren't terrible, that they, they're going to still be doing, doing a decent return on their capital. Yeah. I know what you mean where it's not, uh, it's not a guaranteed return, but it's, they get that, uh, before there's any sort of like profit share or incentive fee to Harbor right. capital. Right. So they know like before, at least I'm, I'm, if the deal makes it, I'm getting this before we're splitting anything. So it's like, yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, makes, yeah. Makes sense. But yeah, I think it's interesting, you know, just every trend is in Texas's favor. So I'm not surprised to hear what you're, what you're saying. Uh, you know, a lot of these relocations, um, like they, um, you know, they announce them like a business relocation, but they don't just move immediately. It's like they announced yeah. it in 2020, but they actually are going to move in 2023. So then they're still ringing Levi's phone um, or your brokers, I guess, probably, but about moving. Yeah, um, certainly. So, yeah, that that all makes sense. And so I got the reasons yeah. why, you, why you invest in it. What would we have a lot of passive investors that uh, listen and watch? So what what would you say like your investors are um, 
looking for? Because I think they're probably not saying I like how high the untrended yield on cost is or what we were talking about before. This is like they, yeah. they're looking at this from a different angle. So what have you heard? What do they like about investing in industrial? Yeah, I think um, if you don't mind, I want to answer with a, a, odd, a kind of an odd. I want to go a different direction with it. I wrote a thread the other day. I don't know if you saw it about Texas. Um, I, do you mind I, if I, I read it, but that? Yeah. yeah, just go, go ahead. <laughs> let, me, yeah. let me read that. I've got it open here. Um, okay. I, I basically have, have been doing a bunch of research trying to figure out why, because I've got a bunch of other, you know, there's a peer group of other industrial investors that I know and I'm often, in, you know, interacting with. And they're all kind of giving me a different read on what their markets are doing in Indianapolis or you know, Florida or wherever else they own assets. And so I was trying to figure out like, what, what is it about Texas that makes it special? Because I want to understand kind of why we're, uh, you know, wh why this still works and, and does this have legs, right? Is this, is this just a temporary little uh, boom or is this something that kind of can, can continue to run long-term? So I'm going to, I'm going to read this. Yeah, let's go. Yeah. All right. We need to talk about what's happening in Texas from the uh, manufacturing, the goods of the future standpoint, the Texas triangle, meaning Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, and San Antonio finds itself sitting in an unparalleled position, boasting cheap food, cheap power, laughably light regulatory oversight, cheap land, no income tax, minimal corporate tax, and yet I'm just getting started. Attracted to the state like flies to a flood lamp at night, American manufacturers from all sectors keep pouring in. From aerospace to automotive to oil processing and semiconductors, it's a dynamic geographic triangle that leverages the strength of each urban core. Austin operationalizes Silicon Valley's ideas while Dallas-Fort Worth leverages its banking prowess and skilled labor pool to turn out manufacturing equipment. San, Ant San Antonio mixes even lower costs than the Texas average with the tech of Austin and capital of Dallas to turn out anything that could be put on an assembly line. Don't even get me started on Houston. It plays with Austin in tech, Dallas in automation, and San Antonio in manufacturing, and it's a financial capital and it is a financial capital, not to mention that it is one of the world's largest energy hubs that happens to be conveniently located off the Gulf Coast, boasting America's largest port by value, second only to Germany and machine shop tech. And oh, yeah, by the way, Houston is the second largest concentration of Fortune 500 headquarters in the world. The Texas Triangle is only one of a few regions in the world that can practically stand alone without the help or trade of its neighbors, yet it does not have to. It's situated in the heart of America, which has ports on three sides, the most arable land of any country in the world, friendly neighbors, energy independence, and the largest military and current guts to start raising interest rates when the rest of the world is keeping the cheap debt party going down the road, only deepening the pain of their eventual hangovers. As the world changes around us, it's hard not to be long America and impossible not to be long Texas. So, there we go. Even getting the mil military into that. That's uh, right. Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, but that's no, that's that makes it's just that's there's so much momentum there. You know, just yeah. I mean, you think about it over half, uh, you know, it, this is at least what it feels like over half the relocations when you hear them announce where everybody's all the companies that have bailed on California and these other places, it's half are are one of those texas cities and then the rest get spread out basically on the rest of the sun belt you know tennessee yeah. arizona florida pick up a ton um yeah for a lot of the same reasons you know but they uh you know texas is especially for industrial it's right in the middle of everything absolutely you know, and yeah and probably you know for a, a lot of these businesses you know i uh um, like I just actually watched a video where Puma reloc is opening a new warehouse. They wanted it to be in California. They couldn't find any space in the Inland Empire. And they're like, you know what? We're just going to open it in Phoenix. It's like a six hour drive, but it's like a third of the price or something like that. And right, um, right. The, the guy who was talking about from Puma is like, you can either be close to your customers or close to the port. Mm -hmm. And it's too expensive to be close to the port. It's basically yep. like to keep it simple. So now, yep. you know, yep. you, you pick up. You moved to, uh, to DFW or something, and now you're right in the middle of the country uh, yeah. with, you know, and it's not, and there's so many people there. If you add up the population yeah. of uh, those cities you just mentioned, those four, I mean, that's got a, you know, it's rival enormous. just like, the, yeah, the Northeast yeah. or SoCal. Yeah, the like Houston port the was never, pre-COVID, the Houston port wasn't a major, I mean, obviously it's a big port, but it wasn't like a major kind of inlet of goods from international suppliers, you know, exporters or, you know, importing into America. But 
post-COVID, it's doubled and maintained that double amount of volume coming through the port. So it's just a lot more, you know, just goods and services coming into town here. So, yeah. So that's, that's why Texas now let's, (laughs) let's answer the passive, let's answer the investor question. Why do these, uh, LPs jump in your your deals. What are they thinking about? They it's for cash flow or most of them are looking for basically there are a lot of LPs who have invested in a lot of real estate and done well over the last ten years and are looking for a way to keep the party started. And industrial is is a very good, safe, long term bet. Um, and the way we structure our deals and have this open, honest communication about kind of how bad things could get and how what we're doing to mitigate that, I think is is attractive. And so we're we're in the thankfully in the position right now where we have about five times as much equity capital available as deal flow. And so we're trying to get that deal flow up. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing too, where that's, you know, good on, on you Levi and I'm in the same position where like, I'm, I'm probably the bottleneck on the, the deals. Cause I, I don't want to yeah. do any bad deals. So if, you know, oh, yeah. if it doesn't, Nothing. yeah, I feel like there's, you know, where we need to be the gatekeepers for a lot of these investors where we don't want to push out a bad deal just to make like a quick buck. I mean, they, they're checking over the deals obviously, but we, yeah. uh, we do this every day. So we, we don't, uh, just have a lot more expertise in this. So then you, we kind of see all the places things can go wrong and don't want to, um, you know, just be pushing deals to push deals. So it makes not surprised yeah. to hear that. Yeah. A reputation is everything. How can people get in touch with you? Um, if anyone, they like what they heard, they want to kind of see what Levi's up to, where, where should they go? Yeah, so I'm uh, on Twitter, uh, at Levi James here is my handle on Twitter. And then harborcap.com is our website. Uh, you can sign up there to see our deal flow. And if you're an accredited investor, welcome to take a look at our deals and invest in them. So Perfect. And they can just uh, sign up right on the list, right on the website. Yeah, and if you know, we basically they? have a qualification process, and then we approve it on the back end. So perfect, but nowhere else, to... no, no need to go somewhere else. You just write all on the website. So right, right. Well, thanks, Levi. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Until next time, everyone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us on the Rise and Invest podcast. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you enjoy your podcast. If you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing check out our company's website, riseinvest.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report, and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website, The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries. The views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities and the speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.